Let's take our copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. If you are visiting with us, I include a welcome for you. Look in front of you. You'll see a Bible in the rack in front. Grab one. Turn to Romans 4. Follow along with us. Last week, we actually opened up this chapter, chapter 4, and had a look at the fathers of the faith. That was the title of our message last week. The text presented two such fathers in the opening verses of chapter 4, two such fathers, Abraham and David. David, who, as we read Psalm 51, Bill took us out of the table, who penned that psalm, we ended with David. We ended with him last week in verses 6 through 8, another psalm quoted by Paul of his, Psalm 32. And David, of course, was a well-known Israelite forefather. He was well-known, and David's deeds were well-known among God's people, very, very much so. His military might, of course, his slaying of a giant, all of that well, well well-known. However, none of those acts, as bold as they were, made David right with God. In fact, David just as famously performed humiliating acts. In fact, the context of the psalm we went through at the table was through some sinful deeds, Bathsheba and Uriah. And David, as you look at all of David's acts, good and bad, was justified before God. But here's the thing as we're studying this in Romans 4. He was not justified before God because those good deeds just happened to be bigger than the bad deeds. He wasn't justified before God because he happened to have more good deeds than, not, or than bad deeds. That's not why he was justified by God. Not at all. But David was justified, listen, specifically, his lawless deeds forgiven, his sins covered. We saw that in verse 7. David, his sins not counted, which means not reckoned, not charged against his account. Saw that in verse 8. Because David believed God. That's it. David believed God. And what did he believe? God said, I will forgive those who come to me. Those repentant, those humbled, God said, and it's still what God says today, I will grant mercy to and give grace towards those that believe in me. That's what God has said. David is justified because he believed that, and he believes that. And let's be clear as we begin, and we're revisiting these fathers, David was not indifferent David didn't shrug, he didn't laugh, he didn't mock. No, he believed, Psalm 51, Psalm 32. And that belief, that faith, was counted as righteousness. That's what the Bible tells us. That same faith, true of another father we learned last time, of course, Abraham. Abraham, the Jewish forefather, look at verse 1, according to the flesh. Yes, the ethnic patriarch of Israel. The forefather, according to the flesh. Again, this well-known patriarch of Israel. In fact, we talked last week about the exaggerated reverence for him in Jewish history. All the extra biblical texts making Abraham out to be perfect in his deeds. Abraham, of course, on that, known for his works. Leaving for the promised land. Of course, the sacrifice of Isaac. He's known for that, but that's not... Like David, why Abraham was justified in God's sight. No, Abraham was justified by faith. We revisit verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. There it is. And it was there. It was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God and that was counted to him as righteousness. Well, this morning we pick up in this passage. And specifically we're going to see Abraham, this father, pulled forward in the text. Let's take a look at it. We're going to begin in verse 9. Look with me down to verse 17. Let's continue. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. 
He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, we pray as we consider those words before us this morning that you would indeed illuminate our eyes and our minds and hearts, to to see it, to understand it, to bring them in deeply, Lord, and of course, for output as well. Lord, that these words would be used along with the entirety of your word to conform us into the image of your Son, that we may go out and live his likeness, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Abraham, and specifically his fatherhood, become the focus of the rest of this chapter. In fact, Abraham, his very name means that, a father, and father of a vastness, a father of a host, of a multitude. That's what Abraham means. He now, as we look at this chapter, becomes the focus, and particularly who he is, not only to Israel, but to all of us, and we'll explain that. The Apostle Paul here, by way of the inspired word, will present Father Abraham. A father, however, not according to flesh. That's not Paul's point here. But the common Jew would believe that. That's where they would go. This is our ethnic father, of course. Chapter 4, verse 1. But this is a fatherhood in view here by Paul that is for all who believe. Look at verse 11. This is what we're going to see in this section. For all who believe, that's the key. That's the fatherhood key. Abraham, we see in verse 16, is the father of us all. Again, that would be believers. Very different group. Abraham, the father of us all, in the presence of God whom he believed, verse 17. And Abraham, as you see plainly stated in that same verse, 17, look at it, the father of many nations, living up to his name given by God. So how is that so? How is Abraham the father of many nations? How is it that Abraham, a Jew of one nation, a man from one nation, how is it that Abraham, this Jew of one nation, is called the father of many nations? How is that? Well, the rest of this chapter will show us. Let's dig in this morning with the explanation that this portion submits to us in verses 9 to 17. Let's do that. And the first thing we're going to see in this fatherhood is one by way of blessing, through blessing. That's what we see. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing then, just stop right there, is this blessing, expression this blessing, you would say, what is this blessing? Well, it's the same one that's been in view In the verses just before, right? We just keep reading verses 6 through 8, that blessing, right? Just as David also speaks of the blessing, and then the blessed are those. It's the same one, same one in view. The blessing that is, and what is it? We looked at this last week. Verses 7 and 8 outline this from Psalm 32. The blessing that is righteousness counted to one apart from works. The blessing of a cleared account before God. Your account is clear. This is the blessing, not because you earned it. The blessing is a blessing because we did not earn it and we could not earn it. That's what makes it a blessing. The blessing is forgiveness. The blessing is covering. It's iniquity counted not against the sinner. The blessing David received, listen, by faith as did his ancestor Abraham. 
Abraham, the father of that blessing, as the word records him receiving it from the very beginning. Thus, Abraham is the father to all those that similarly also receive that blessing. That's the key. Now, Abraham, like David, was a Jew. They were both Jews. And the obvious question then, as you consider the blessing and all that we're learning here, is this. This is most likely the obvious question for you and certainly for the Jew that's tracking with Paul's argument. And it's found in verse 2. Look at it. One might say, well, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, the Jew, or is it also for the uncircumcised? And as we read from Genesis 17 this morning, we recognize circumcision was the badge for the Jew. That birthright, so to speak, the physical mark commanded for every Jew. It marked them. And to the one tracking verse by verse here in the study, this is a good question, right? It's a very appropriate question. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Only for the Jew. I mean, this letter is taught that justification is not by way of works and law, and certainly circumcision, those domains of the Jew. It is teaching that one is right with God by faith. So it's a logical question, making the right inference and the right application. In fact, to cement that so that we're all clear here, let us recall the context. Go back to chapter 2. Do you remember this was taught earlier in the same letter, speaking of circumcision and its effect with respect to salvation or being made right with God? Verse 25, chapter 2. For circumcision indeed is of value, listen, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, it's like you're not. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? You see the tie there. Really, circumcision in view is tied here to obedience. Then he who is physically uncircumcised without a mark, but keeps the law, obedience, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. In other words, will condemn you with the physical mark, but you're not doing what the physical mark represents. And then this, verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Remember, those verses, you see them there, would have rocked the Jew. The suggestion by Paul that the uncircumcised would be considered a Jew. And imagine them throwing up their arms. And that would have been one thing, but then let's go to chapter 3 by way of recap to keep this context. Look at verse 21. Paul, remember, laying an argument, tile by tile, layer by layer, and verse 21 says this, but now, he's just blown up righteousness coming through the law, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, look, apart from the law, should include circumcision. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, if they are to be justified, by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification for those that are justified, look at it, is given as a gift. It's untethered from law, work, and circumcision. It's no wage earned. A gift, chapter 3, would go on to show that was from a God who was not a God of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, verse 29, chapter 3. And the implication of that then articulated clearly, look at chapter 3, verse 30, as Paul brought that to a close at the end of the chapter. He said this, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, clear. Again, for the one following Paul's argument here, the answer to the question, the question back in chapter 4, verse 2, as we, again, reorient, is obvious. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Is this blessing only for the circumcised? Now, Paul will pause for a moment, he's, as he's often going to do. The, the answer to that is obvious, right? But he's going to pause here. For a moment. 
And he's going to do this. He's going to pause in verse 9, verse 10. And he does this often. You see this in Ephesians. He does this often. He's like, I'm going to answer your question, but something else the Lord right, has given to him. And an inspire words given to him. And he does a little excursus. He does that here too. Now he's going to come back to this in verse 11. But look at the end of verse 9 for a moment. He says this, For we say, and this is important with his argument, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Paul reminds here, now listen, Westmount, that the answer to the question about the scope of the blessing, is it limited to just the Jew? This is what Paul is doing. He's going to say the answer to that question about the scope of the blessing is defined by the parameters of the reception. It's important. In other words, said it this way, however broad the blessing is, Jew, non-Jew, whoever, it's received this way. It's broad, but here's the funnel. By faith. He's reminding us of that here. By faith. By faith that is counted as righteousness. In other words, what Paul wants to make clear is there is no other way. In one sense, it's opened up beyond the Jew to the non-Jew, but there is only one way. By faith. At this point, Paul anticipates a possible Jewish protest as he does so often, right, as he's writing in the first century. The Jew might say, okay, yes, Paul. Abraham had faith. I agree. And sure, maybe, Paul, I grant that was the vehicle that God used to give Abraham righteousness. Paul, I'm with you. But, Paul, let us not forget, you're a Jew with me, Paul, that Abraham was circumcised. He had the mark that we all have as a Jew. And, Paul, might I remind you, that mark was in the beginning. His faith flowed from that. He was a good Jew. In fact, Paul, he was the Jew of Jews. Well, we stop here to recognize that we too know this line of reasoning. Before we go any further, we would say it with a different people of God, so to speak, as the church. We know this line of reasoning. In fact, we know it only too well, don't we? We might have a similar response and think of things today that we want to tie to our faith, marks of our faith. We'd say, make us right in God's sight. What about our Christian DNA, the heritage? Brought up to know the Bible, taught it from a Christian home. Is that your mark? What about our obedience? Just doing the things of God. Reading, attending, singing, praying. We do those things. And what about our baptism? Talk about a ceremony. Well, I've done that. I've done that. And we may think that because that is generally how everything else works. We think of a mark as the reason why we are who we are. The Christian home, the obedience, the Sunday morning, the baptism, that's our mark and our badge. Get the car, do the deed, obtain the access, then you can live and abide by that. That's our economy, and we're very comfortable with that, because it makes sense to us in our earthly minds. So to the Jew who might agree here, they would think the same. Yes, Paul, I'm with you. And again, we just need to remind you, Paul, in your big argument, Abraham was circumcised. As such, Paul continues his excursus with a direct response to that. Look at verse 10. How then was it counted to him? And this is circumcision. Was it before or after? Or faith, sorry. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Paul's point is here, let's look at chronology. By faith, this righteousness counted as faith. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? That's the question, is it? And that's a very, very good question recognized here. This is not a faith flowing out of Abraham's circumcision. What Paul is saying here is no, reader. It's the opposite. And this one can only imagine what the Jew would do in response to this. Let's turn to Genesis 15 so that we too are clear on this as we read the word is given to us by way of the canon of Scripture. Genesis 15 has a specific location and we need to be clear on that. Now we looked at Genesis 15 last week and we're going to come back to that later again. But of course, we looked at verse 6 in Genesis 15 is the one that Paul is referencing. And what's specific there is that's where, look at it, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. There it is. There is its location. And that was last week. Now, there's at least a distance of about 13 years, maybe more, 
until this. What Z read for us in Genesis 17, what comes after that? And it is this. Look at chapter 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Look at this. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. This is so glaring, isn't it? This is well after faith counted as righteousness. This is not a faith flowing from circumcision. This is a circumcision, as we're going to see, sealing faith. And so what we're seeing with Abraham in Genesis 15, defining his fatherhood then, is no ethnic or national boundary to exemplary faith. This is broader than Israel. In fact, it's been pointed out by others, but I just pointed out to you here too, it's important. Abraham had a faith that was counted as righteousness before there was even Jew or Gentile. When he was just a man following God, when there was no ethnic distinction, and that's very important, we're going to come back to that. He just believed, and we see downstream We have circumcision. It's a mark of the covenant and so on. Now that is the point as you turn back to Romans 4. Hold on to that because that's the point Paul is making in verse 10. What's the chronology of these things? It's a simple chronology. What comes first? And the chronology here speaks for itself. Abraham had faith before circumcision. Thus his circumcision, his obedience to do it in Genesis 17... It actually flowed first from his faith. Before the Jewish nation, before Gentiles delineated, before law works, there was faith. So you might ask then, well, what's the purpose of circumcision then? Why did God prescribe it? If it did not earn anything, if it was not the blessing, what was the point of going through a ritual like that? That's a good question. Well, Paul answers that in verse 11. Look. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This is just so clear. Simply, circumcision was a sign. You see that? Which means, as all signs do, they do what? They point to something. That's what a sign is designed to do. It points to something. More precisely, it pointed to and confirmed something like a seal. Verse 11, it's sealing, it's confirming something. A seal, look at it, of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. And then look at this, verse 11. Still, faith he had, this faith still he had while he was uncircumcised. See that? That's the context. He was uncircumcised, had the faith, and then to seal that and confirm it, he was given that. So, like a policeman's badge, like a marriage certificate, like a university degree, and we can go on and on. Those things come downstream to what? Confirm and seal what has actually happened. So too circumcision. So too circumcision. The Bible tells us that's the case here in the case of Abraham. That his circumcision was given as a sign and a seal of his faith that he already had and demonstrated prior Abraham was already justified, already made right long before his circumcision. That's just so important, particularly for the the Jew, but particularly for us that want to tie being made right with God to signs and seals and things that we do. And clearly here, and say it another way, the circumcision was only a sign, let's be clear, not a salvation for Abraham. Circumcision was only a sign, not a salvation for Abraham. Now, the order is important, not just for understanding justification's content. So, in other words, it's not just to show us that justification, being made right by God, is just not by works. No, there's much more here. Let's dig in further. The order is also important to show justification's scope. So, not just the content of it, but the scope of it, its reach. And this is glorious. 
Paul calls it the purpose in verse 11. Look with me to the end. Let's just keep reading because this is tied to it. The purpose, middle of verse 11, was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Amazing. And to make him the father, he's not done. Look at this, to make him the father of the circumcised. We're not merely circumcised. That would be just in flesh or just in a mark, but who also walk. These would be in the footsteps, the obedient footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Notice here, Abraham's fatherhood of faith is much bigger than the Jewish nation. Do you see that? This is where now we're getting a bigger scope. In fact, his patronage reaches over not just Israel, but to a much larger multitude. It is fatherhood, verse 11, that for all who believe, look at that, all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Do you see that? So clearly there, Abraham is a father beyond the Jewish nation. Indeed, the father of a multitude. He is a father in the faith. Look at this, to all who believe. Yes, Christian, to you as well. A forefather, not of flesh only, we might say, but of faith, so that righteousness is counted to all of those, regardless of birthmark, regardless of circumcision, to all those that believe and have faith. Abraham is father. And in case the Jew overcorrects here, and we are creatures of overcorrection, aren't we? Paul is sure to circle back to them. Look at verse 12. Abraham is the father of the Jews. So someone doesn't grasp this, and as many do, and then throw out the Jews and say, oh yeah, there's a whole new group now, right? We're done with the Jews. Here's a whole new group, and it's just this group. No, no. He's the father of Jews, but specifically, look, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised in flesh, or we could say in token and mark, but also who walk in the footsteps of faith that Abraham had and see this, before he was circumcised. That's the point. Here we see something similar to when Paul said, one is not just a Jew outwardly. Remember that back in chapter 3, 28? But one signed and sealed truly inwardly, circumcised in heart. Chapter 3, verse 29. Saved through that blessing, not by flesh and works. That blessing possible for all humanity, both circumcised and uncircumcised. No limit. That is how Abraham, that is how Abraham is the father of many nations through blessing. The blessing of forgiveness, faith, and being made right. Not by law, not by work, not by nationality. That's one way presented here, but there's another, how Abraham is a father of faith. The second, through promise. Through blessing, through promise. We continue in verse 13. Look with me at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Look at that. The promise to Abraham might initially seem to be synonymous with the blessing. You may say, well, aren't those the same things? Blessing, promise. And certainly, Westmount, there is a sense, I would tell you, in which they overlap. There is a sense to that. Yet there is important distinction, too, and we need to grasp that first. The blessing, remember, was being counted righteous in God's sight. Your account wiped clean. What great blessing. With regard to the promise, on the other hand, in some, we could say it's actually stated in verse 13, that Abraham would be heir of the world. That's a grand title, isn't it? Heir of the world. Now that is huge and sweeping but one that shouldn't shock you too much. If you've been tracking with this study, you would say, well, yes, that makes sense. It's completely in line, in fact, with all that we've been learning. In fact, in the immediate context here, we've just learned of Abraham's fatherhood, the father of many nations, the father of all with faith, unlimited by nationality. So Abraham inheriting children, global children, if you will, of all nations, is it, and it makes sense. In the broader context of Scripture, too, we have also seen the promise of global heirs. Again, let's pull back and be reminded of the promise from the beginning. Return again to these chapters. Go to Genesis 12, and let's see this brief survey where this expression comes from, but we're going to 
grab some more along the way here. We turn to Genesis 12, and again, by way of review, do you remember this? This is the most famous call of Abraham, who's in Ur, worshiping moons, presumably, in this pagan culture. And look at this, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And this is always it. Between one and two is always it. God is going to say something. And the question always is, remember we said this last week, do you believe it? Right? He's about to say something and he's going to say something to Abraham. Do you believe it? What is he going to say? Verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, do you believe that? And here's the promise. The promise, much we could say about a great nation name. Look at verse 3. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's why we can rightly say he'd be heir of the world, right? In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But that's one. Look at Genesis 13. Pick it up in verse 14. Just keep tracking this account. Notice how many times it's, it's mentioned in the Abraham account. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, east and west, for all the land that you see. Here God says something. I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Do you see that there? Not only is there a promise that is sweeping, right? Geographical sweep here, land and so on, and much more we could say about that. But look at the offspring, the innumerable offspring. Incredible promise that God is making to him. While we're there, as we continue on, let's go to Genesis 15, verse 18. We've been in 15 already. This is picked up again. Look at this, almost chapter after chapter. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Right? So this is in the context of, of God just sealing these things with Abram, who's demonstrated faith. To your offspring, I give this land. And then he outlines it from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the, Je- the Jebusites. Again, the promise, not only now of land, but offspring and land. And you see that this is a promise to give. God says, I will give you this. And I want you to just note the things. And what we're doing is getting the content of the promise right, right? It's global in scale. There's a sense of land, nation, geography. There's offspring. There's a multitude. All of this is in the promise. But then there's this here. Go to Genesis 17 as we complete this survey. The promise crystal clear here too, as was read this morning. Pick it up in verse 4. God says, behold, my covenant is with you. This is to Abraham, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. Incredible promise here to Abraham that he would be, and here it is, where do we get heir of the world from? How is he heir of the world? He's the father of many nations. Many, many nations. A promise repeated over and over again. In fact, look at verse 8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Note the time for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So much here. By the way, while we're serving, it deserves restatement. And this is in line with Paul's point in Romans 4. All of what we just surveyed is before Genesis 22. And you can turn there before we go back to Romans 4 to note this. All of that promised, right? Abraham's righteous or counted as righteous, his faith. Later, downstream, afterwards, this, after the whole Isaac sacrifice account. Let's pick that up in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. 
And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, look at this, all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Now, people, of course, go to that and say, what? But didn't the angel of the Lord said, because you've done this? Didn't the angel of the Lord said, because you've obeyed my voice? But what does the good Bible reader say? Those things were actually promised what? Already. And what God is doing here is just affirming. He's saying here, this is the demonstration of the faith counted as righteousness. And let me repeat. You didn't earn anything here. It was just confirmed what God had given him. And only God has given him. And with that, again, as we come back now to Romans 4, we understand what Paul is doing here. The rest of the verse, in fact, getting back to Romans and 13 is clear. Look at it again in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law. In other words, not through his obedience, not through his circumcision, but through the righteousness of faith. This is what Abraham is demonstrating to us. It says, by the way, one last detail we comment on before we leave this verse, the promise is to Abraham and his offspring. Here in view, of course, as we keep the context, is not offspring according to flesh, is it? We've already proven, the text has shown, it's not offspring according to flesh. This offspring is offspring of faith. Yes, certainly to the Jew first, chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But the offspring is also the uncircumcised, the Greek, the Gentile. Listen, all who believe. Let's keep this argument. Now, as we learned last year in our prophet study, do you remember that on Wednesday nights? There are many promises to Israel, to the Jew, a future, a restoration, a land, a coming kingdom. It's all there. We also learn that faithful Gentiles inherit that too. They're grafted into that. They become joint heirs of that. That's the glory. In fact, the worldwide implications cannot be missed in the Old Testament. And saying that, we must recognize there's one more central and foundational aspect of the promise that comes from Israel and extends to the whole world. And we have to mention this, because this is at the heart of the promise. Genesis 15 points beyond, and when we think about Genesis 15, and even a lot of the promises we just read, there are many offspring, there is a multitude, but never forget in Genesis 15, and this is where we were last week, what was promised. Remember this, Genesis 15. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue what? childless and the heir of my house now remember he would be heir of the world the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus and Abraham said behold you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir think of the context to Abraham I have no offspring I'm barren futile incapable and who is going to be my heir now think about this how palatable with Romans 4 13 he will be heir of the world Verse 4, Genesis 15, Behold, a word of the Lord came to him. Here's the decree. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And again, we're reminded, God says, Abraham, do you believe that? And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to. In other words, you're not. He said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then, of course, on the heels of that, Abraham, do you believe this? Verse 6, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. But note there the promise of a son. The promise of a son that is at the middle of the orbit for all the offspring. The promise of a son. And it is not just any son, as so much Old Testament prophecy does. There is a near pointer, like Isaiah's son, that is meant as a platform to point well beyond the immediate referent. And here too, not just a son, not just Isaac, but a coming son, the son, indeed a Jew, indeed of his loins, and all of that, a redeemer, a Messiah, a king. Listen to Psalm 2. We sung it this morning, chapter, or Psalm 2, verse 8. Said to this son in the psalm, it says this, Ask of me. This is to the Son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is to the coming Son. That is worldwide possession. Sounds like the promised language in Romans 4, 13. 
So in other words, we could accurately say, heirs through the heir coming. One more, Psalm 72, 8. May he, this son, have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is how he's heir of the world. Same son, Jesus, same global possession and rule. Of course, we're still awaiting that, and it cannot come too soon for us, right? Especially as we think of recent events. But mark at that promise of a returning king and a coming kingdom. It is sure. God spoke and it came to be. God promised and it will come to pass. It is coming. Yes, this promise guarantees that God, here it is, through Jesus Christ, will reclaim the world that was lost through Adam's sin. You mark it, Christian. That's the promise. The lost world through Adam's sin is on reclamation through Jesus Christ. He is coming to reclaim it and to reign and to rule over all of it. That son, as we see here, promised through the line of Abraham. And in that broader sense, he is indeed heir of the world. And promised then to all those with the faith of Abraham, that son, that lordship, that hope. That's the universal fatherhood of Abraham through promise. Now, before Paul is done with this, look at promise. He circles back for a moment. and Look at verse 14. Again, we just want to keep tight with Paul. Look at verse 14. He says, For if it is the adherents of the law are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What Paul wants to do here is you look at those two verses. He wants to place this part of his argument on promise with the rest of what he's been working through to this point. He wants to take promise and say, I'm going to place it. I'm going to align it with law or I'm going to align it with faith. And Paul says, if the promise is inherited by adherents of the law, or we could say, or the doers of the law, or even more accurately, if it's inherited by the effectual doers, the wage earners of the law, meaning they do earn it, If the promise can be accessed that way, then think with me, Westmount. What's the natural implication if it can be earned that way? Well, faith is null and the promise is meaningless, isn't it? Because, and you know how this works. Anyone would say, well, I can earn it. I don't need that. And even better, I want to earn it. In other words, earning is the only way and it renders the promise meaningless. And we saw this earlier in the study. If gained by work and law, then we earn and we boast. But the whole point of Paul's argument is that we can't. And more than unnecessary, faith and here promise again become empty and void. That's frightening. By the way, in view specifically is the Jew here and a possible perfect law adherent Jew. The Jews like to think there was one that could obey the law perfectly. They like to think that. The point is, if the Jew could earn through law, then all the promised business is useless. That's the point. Not only that, but that would also limit the earnings. Now, here it is, only to the Jew. They have the law. They work for it. It's just a Jew thing. Sorry if you're not a Jew. And that may seem like a trivial point now, but Westmont, hold on to that for a moment. And we're just going to keep marching with the reasoning Paul is giving to us here. But he's just laying down some important bricks Paul reminds them in verse 15 that it is the law, speaking of the law, and transgression of it that brings wrath. As such, if there was no law, there would be no transgression and, hence, no promise. The promise is rooted and based on the reality, here it is, of not only law and sin, but think of the Abraham account. The reality of promise has the force of promise because Abraham couldn't. And we can't. A promise is not a true promise without that, set against such inability. Abraham was futile, barren, hopeless, futureless. The point here is not that unfortunately because of law we have sin. We'll see later in Romans 5.13, it'll say that sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. So let's that's, that's not miss that point. The law in view there, of course, the Mosaic law. But it reminds us that the Mosaic law was only a stripe of the law, the law of God that has always been fixed in the heavens, the law of God that we have always broke, the law of God, whether through Moses that we learned in Exodus or our conscience we learned in Romans 2, 15, 
Or by way of Christ, we learn in the Gospels, in the New Testament. The law of God remains the law, the transcendent cosmic law that all humanity is subject to that we cannot attain or adhere to. As a result, we continue in verse 16. That is why, because of our not only Abraham's inability, our inability, that is why it depends on faith. Stop there. This is the reason, the purpose we need faith, because we cannot. I think so often we are so quick to just take the legs out of faith and forget our absolute desperate need for it. Faith is not something that helps you get through the day. Listen to me, faith is the only reason you get through the day. It's not just a tool or a means to me. Faith is everything. If you don't believe it, you won't do it. More, look at the rest of verse 16. Not only do the adherent of the law, and this is that the promise is resting on grace and guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Faith in the resting of the promise on grace is what enables it to be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. Grace, the unmerited, undeserved favor. And here we're really getting to the heart of it. That's what the promise is. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. And it's guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not just the Jews in their law, but look at it, to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. They too become an heir. Who then, end of verse 16, Abraham then is indeed the father of us all. That's Jew and Gentile, all with this faith. It's the universal fatherhood of Abraham through promise. That is Abraham, and that's how he is the father of many nations, through blessing, through promise. Paul confirms both blessing and promise with a final reminder. And the last verse here in verse 17, look at it. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. As it is written, I pray, Westman, at this point, you should by now know where that is taking us to, right? You see that cue, you know exactly what's about to happen. The Old Testament, yes. Genesis, in context here, yes. Genesis 17, as we've seen already, indeed. That is the promise given to Abraham in the presence of the one in whom he believed, God. That could be it. It could end there. But Paul, look what he does. Caps This whole piece here with two credentials of this God. And why does he do it? These are two credentials that Abraham's faith hangs on. That's why he's presenting them here. Now, what are they? This is where Abraham's hope is found. Said another way, Abraham did not just believe God, but he believed this about God. Remember we said this a few weeks ago? He didn't have an abstract faith. Oh, yes, I believe in deity. I believe there's something out there. He believed this about God. Look again, number one, verse 17, that this God, the only God, gives life to the dead. Two, that God calls into existence the things that do not exist. We know nothing of those two things, do we? We want those two things, don't we? In our living and in our building, we would like to have some of this, if we're being honest, but we cannot. In fact, we're so far from these credentials, we just need to admit it. Beloved, listen, and we say that as we close, because faith is not unreasonable. Your relative, your friend, your neighbor says, you have an unreasonable faith. You just take these leaps of faith. No, faith is not unreasonable. Listen to me, it depends on the reliability of the one that you're trusting. Your faith and the reliability of your faith depends on who and what you trust. Is that not true? That's how strong your faith is. As such, it's always reasonable, listen, to trust the trustworthy, isn't it? Would it be reasonable to trust someone and believe someone who is perfect? I think so. And there is no one with that algorithm, with that logic, no one more trustworthy than God, is there? There's no such thing when you believe in God to have an unreasonable faith. Yet we still question, don't we? And we still doubt. Who called this world into existence? Who was it? 
Who brought something out of nothing? Have you thought about that recently? Who took nothingness and brought somethingness? Who did that? Who gives life to the dead? Who raises the dead? And who is the only one, like he's done and will do with Don, and will do with you, Christian, who is the only one with power over your grave? Who is the only one? I leave you with this commentary from Hebrews 11 of the Abraham account. Pick it up in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You see that? You're going to slaughter the one through the offspring will come? 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so Isaac, figuratively, powerfully came back from the dead. This is the faith that Abraham was given. And as you read Genesis 22 in light of all of Genesis 12 to Genesis 21, you realize that was a faith given to him by God. Because none of us can muster up that kind of faith. Abraham was as good as dead, 75 years old by most measures when he received the promise, well beyond bearing seed age. Childless, barren, hopeless, yet God gave him Isaac the next year, 24 or so plus years later, when he was 99. And then God said, take that son and kill him. The one that giving you the promise through. Yet Abraham knew God would bring him back and raise him from the dead. This is the faith of the father of many nations. And it remains today the only faith. The only faith. That God gives life to the dead. And whatever your stead is here today, this morning, in this building, whatever it is, whether you are walking dead or walking alive with hope, whatever it is, God calls you to that faith right now. He calls that to you. He offers you that faith. And again, the question is, will you receive it? Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, God, we come before you, the author of all things, including our faith. The faith that you give us, the faith that we then can exercise by your grace to be counted as righteousness. And Lord, I pray for all of us. If we have not, and it's extended by your decree that we would. And for those of us that have, Lord, I pray that we would walk in that. By your grace, by your mercy, in Christ's name, amen.